Welcome to Worker Movement, a podcast dedicated to the working class, a podcast dedicated to raising class consciousness. This podcast is for you, for us, for the worker. On today's episode of Worker Movement, we'll talk about equity in educational access. With the recent transition to distance learning across all age groups, the working class is disproportionately affected as essential workers or economic hostages, as we discussed in our first episode, must continue working. How does that impact the education of their kids? Is this just a short-term issue caused by COVID-19 or is it a systemic problem of capitalism? That's a good question. Um, let's start off first by, about sort of policy and how we got to where we are today. And so that, that comes with this idea that policy is dictated by suburban households. They're the households that have the time, the money, uh, to go out and, and and be part of the economic uh, system during the day and then have time to go and donate time uh, to the economic or to the school system at night. And we're referring to what's called the petite bourgeois, in case you guys want to know about class consciousness. And they're the ones that uh, make more money than the working class, but they don't make enough money as the capitalist does. And so they're the ones that we consider to be the suburbanites, the ones that have the big uh, states out in the outer rings of the cities. And they, again, they have that time money they can go and they can donate, uh, again, not only financially, but also with time. Uh, and so as we take a look at how they dictate policy, we take a look at all the ways that policy can be crafted. And the first is is by content, which we're going to sort of skip right over because that's sort of done at the sort of business level at the um, at Texas area. And we'll, we'll get back to that one in a minute. The next way that policy is, is uh, sort of pushed is at the political level. Individuals who get on the school board, who join the PTAs, who are pushing through the state representative. And the next kind of uh, way that we can look at policy and, and how policy is driven is just by the fact of the number of people who show up at the school and who are part of it. And individuals who are part of that suburban class have the ability to spend more time with their children at, at schools and during functions, while the worker class, the ones that have to work two jobs or work 60 hours plus a week or have long commutes, they miss out on this. And they don't have the same opportunities as participate in the system. And this leads to the economic disparity that we talked about in the beginning, in which we have a class of people who are able to work within the school system, craft the policies and push the ideas forward. And those that are left behind who cannot participate, uh, either one, through having no time or, or two, not having the the money or the political power to do anything about that. And it's not a malicious policy that that is uh, being derived from these suburbanite class. It's in their own self-interest. And that self-interest, given that it is predicated on a general economic well-being, does not necessarily take into consideration the economic well-being of uh, either the urban or rural segments that are impacted by policy decisions. Yeah, and, and, it, and it has to do, again, with the inability to look outside of your interest group or look outside of your main contacts. And so if all you've seen around you is people that are fluent and individuals who are able to uh, go to these PTA meetings and do things, then the policies you're going to set in place are going to be more aligned to individuals that have more time and more free time and more money. And so you're going to start pushing for things like, you know, smart classrooms um, or more after school curricular activities 
uh, that do not bode well in places like rural America that have a lot of after school work they have to get done or just transportation being an issue or even the urban areas in which, again, transportation requires that you, you hop on two or three buses or parents have to work late and they can't be part of this. And as we take a look and sort of cut this apart, we find that it's these type of, um, again, small little changes and little tweaks that are causing some of the biggest harm. So in advocating for, say, better technology in the classroom, like, uh, you know, video conferencing or, you know, take home math assignments, uh, digital learning, uh, it's really not accessible to everybody. But part of the viewpoint is that it's, it's technology, it's an advancement, it's good. And while technology can be good, uh, it creates this delineation between the haves and the have nots. And that is creating an, a disparity in educational outcomes. And this is amplified by sort of the recent transition to all distance learning in response to COVID-19. But it's an underlying symptom that existed prior that is accentuated by this recent basically wholesale policy change across the entire country predicated on yeah, and, and one more thing we should bring up, and we kind of glanced over it, or I glanced over it earlier, which is the model of education, and how do we get to where we are now? And people have heard of Common Core, and it's sort of a, a negative swear word, depending which circles and crowds you're in. And this is because this, this Common Core uh, was developed by a marketing team to sort of differentiate themselves from other sort of classic uh, training programs. And the con with this is that it's designed to sell each individual school and each individual teacher sort of a packet of learning. So it removes the function from the teacher, the ability to teach the way they want to. And it's okay that it's, I guess, a centralized planning, but it actually fails the classroom or fails everybody because it's not designed to actually teach. It's designed to make a profit. It's designed to have the most sales in each school district. And, and that means that each teacher is responsible to be in the classroom teaching with paper-based products. So the issue now that we have, and I keep saying the word issue because it's so many of them, uh, is that the entire curriculum is now was paper-based, and the curriculum was based on individual efforts to teach it, meaning that as soon as we shifted away from individualized classroom activities, we now have to redesign and revamp all of the teaching methods. And if the teachers have been using only paper-based and minor amounts of uh, electronics or, or telecommunications, they're at a severe disadvantage. And if they don't have the school district that can support that, then they're even farther uh, behind. So we, we have teachers thrust into kind of a bad situation where the entire uh, school apparatus is centered on this paper-based in-person learning uh, that suddenly transitioned. And there, there are no resources for teachers to provide, uh, I'm gonna say proper instruction. Uh, and I understand that every teacher is doing the best they can. It's a bad situation. They don't have enough resources. They don't have the correct training, but over the long term, uh, we're going to have to adapt the educational kind of framing of how do we teach kids if it's going to move to a distance learning model. I don't know how permanent this will be, but teachers are at a disadvantage, which disadvantages kids, which disadvantages kids that don't have other 
teachers in their lives, which generally are kids in the working class in urban and rural areas. Yeah, let's, let's jump right into them, the next part about this. So we've talked about now how, you know, the policies are being made by the haves for the have-nots and the haves themselves. The entire infrastructure or the entire model for teaching is maximizing profits through Common Core or any other um, paper-based learning or distributed model um, in which, again, the individuals are held accountable for it and not everybody as a whole. Uh, and this time now the infrastructure, which is how is this COVID-19 exacerbating the issue? And so we talk about social economic pressures and we can look at um, not the suburban areas. They have their own, but we'll talk more about the workers who struggle the most, which is in urban and rural areas. And we can't we have to remember that both workers, the farmers and the and the workers like traditional manufacturing and now service workers are brothers and sisters that sweat to produce uh, capital. Um, they are required to not only have access to the Internet, they're required to have a computer a quiet place to learn. They're required to take time out of their day to try to teach their kids and fail in to when the teacher has failed them. Uh, and not to the teacher's fault, but just the fact that it's distance learning in which they may have an hour of lecture instead of two or three. That someone's not over their shoulder helping them out. Um, and again, it goes on to, back to the ability to provide a safe place for these children. And if we take a keep digging down, we find out that we have things like access to food for Title I schools. Some areas that have, you know, 70% or more impoverished means that they get two meals a day. And now these families are extra stressed. Now, luckily, we have some school districts giving out food, which is great. But we have this, this now, this segment of the population who are not only stressed about losing their jobs or being essential workers and, and being, potentially being infected. Individuals who um, don't have the money or resources to buy a computer or have access to the Internet. And we have them now being stressed with food. And we've seen a bunch of neoliberal and terrible ideas coming out about how to address this. And one is we'll give all the kids a Chromebook or a, or a laptop and we'll let and uh, all the big telecom providers will give you a, a free month or two or three of, of Internet during COVID-19. And, um, you know, as long as you just have these things, you should be able to work. But that also means that the parents of the children who may have never been introduced to this technology are able to open up a Zoom meeting for their kindergartner or jump on Facebook if they have to. So the entire infrastructure has put a lot of pressure on our workers, especially in rural areas in which internet connections may not even exist, in which they may be on DSL and they can't even stream, or the urban areas where the, there is nothing coming into the building that's internet. They just have to work worry only about their LTE or their, their hotspotting. So these... Uh, these corporations are interested in providing access, but they're not interested in providing equity to all students. So in providing, uh, let's say a three month Chromebook where AT&T is so gracious and says, oh, well, you can have free, you know, LTE Wi-Fi for three months. And then when we've decided that, you know, COVID's over, you're going back to being poor again. Uh, it doesn't really address the problem and it's going to linger. And it really raises the question of if we as a society are going to value this concept of public education, uh, public schools, what societal change is necessary in order to create an environment in which children have access to act, not only access, but are capable and are trained and have the resources necessary to actually use 
tools that are provided to them. Uh, not just ship a box with a computer in it and have no instructions. Uh, let's say it, you know the computer's in English, but English isn't their first language. What what needs to change at the sort of central planning policy level to ensure that our kids have all of the resources they need in order to excel and learn so that we can have you know, competent, uh, well-educated workers going forward in all jobs. Yeah, th- this is, this is a really tough one on unpack because it, it, it starts to talk about what does it mean to essentially plan and what does it mean to actually provide for the workers? So let's just talk about internet for a second. Internet should be a utility. We saw the FCC because of the pressures of the money makers, those that want to steal your work, your capital. Think about how much money you pay for your cell phone bill and cable internet and cable TV every month. That is money out of your pocket that's going to the profits of others. So let's just go ahead. And it's and it's money that as taxpayers, we are we have already spent money creating infrastructure that we have signed over to private interests so they can charge us back for resources. I'm glad you brought that up because that's that's one of the worst investments we've ever made, which is running uh, basically a scam in which the taxpayers gave a ton of money and required the Comcast and the Verizons, whoever the big ones are, to give it back to us. And we haven't seen any of it. We just basically transferred wealth and transferred infrastructure to those big corporations. So that's one of them. So that means running to the last mile. I mean, the, the cost, uh, we, we, we talk about costs and we talk about utilitarianism a ton. And, and when we talk about, uh, as a worker's point of view, it shouldn't matter if you live 20 miles from the city, if you live two miles from the city. I mean, the last mile costs the most money because it's the last end. But we should be running copper and we should be running fiber, really fiber, everywhere. Just like we should be running natural gas everywhere and water everywhere. We, that infrastructure should exist everywhere. That's one of them. Two, we need to talk about what it means to actually have a centralized planning for education. We can no longer rely on local governments, and we should not rely on Texas to provide us with the future of our education. They put out a terrible product in Common Core. They put out a terrible product in all of the history books. They put out terrible books every single year because of their belief systems, because those that are in power, the policymakers, have a spiritual or some sort of agenda against erasing all the bad parts they don't want you to see. And then and the next is is coming through with that curriculum and actually generating a universal set of curriculum that's taught to all children. And in fact, it could take a distributed model in a way that we the kids have access to videos and other learning tools and the teacher is also there to reinforce. Or the other way around, the teacher's still teaching, but it's also there the videos are there to reinforce. And so it's giving a multiple tool approach to training your kids. Yeah, it's a uh, multiple uh, kind of delivery methods to cover all your bases to sort of handle different, you know, maybe learning styles or different uh, even interest groups where maybe a little bit of uh, the Montessori model where kids kind of get to explore what they're most interested in rather than having this rigid uh, curriculum derived from what's most profitable as decided upon by the Texas, I don't know if it's the school board or what exactly the entity is in Texas, but Texas is the entity that is deciding what is profitable and what the kids uh, should, should be learning. 
doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah, and, and you know, we've glanced over, and, and uh, we're getting close to the end here. We've glanced over the, the part about interaction, right? The, the, some of the biggest growth that happened with, with children, and especially in society, is interaction among its peers. And things like Common Core in this, in this basically standards-based learning is that we focus only on the deliverables that have been set forth by the policymakers and not on a holistic approach, which takes into things like art, music, uh, physical activity, right, secondary languages, things that are really important for the growth of the children, just interacting themselves, digging holes with sticks, right, learning to calm oneself without electronics, taking breaks from really important things. Uh, and so we really need to go back and take a step back and ask the question, what is it like to learn? And what does it mean to be a, a lifetime learner? And you see that a lot, you know, in, in, in anything that from a university level where you're exposed yeah. to way more than just, you know, your core competency. So, yeah, as kids are social distancing more, they're not having the opportunity to experience some of these uh, kind of learning by doing activities like recess or gym class or uh, kind of the free form art where they get to experiment with their hands and different materials and sort of express themselves in uh, perhaps kind of the non nonverbal uh, ways that are really important to uh, children's development. And I, I highly doubt that uh, a lot of that is being uh, conveyed through uh, this remote learning concept uh, that's currently going on today. And uh, kids in the more affluent areas will have more access to stuff like video games where they can, you know, still interact with their, you know, maybe friends that are down the street that they are still going to school with, but don't get to as readily play baseball or sports or whatever they do. Uh, they're still able to interact and have some sort of social engagement, but uh, there's another class of kids that they don't have, I mean, as basic as the internet, they don't have a microphone, they don't have you know, a webcam, they don't have an Xbox or PlayStation to engage uh, with their peers and right. talk about that's, things. That's, that super, that's a good comment. About. And you see this um, as you talk about mobile gaming, right? We have a very isolationist idea when it comes to the minimal technology. And we don't have many, much time left in this podcast to talk about the technology aspect of it and, and sort of the disparity between the rich and the poor. Uh, in the fact of who gets first adoption and who gets last adoption. But we do know that the other disparity that comes through is is the fact that early adopters tend to be those that are fluent and those that have the best technology are those that are, that are fluent. And so we just talk about just the technology gap is there. And so, again, the PlayStation 4 is next comes PlayStation 5. Who the, who's going to be adopting it? Who's going to be able to actually have that social interaction, that social impact? And, again, if we just take a step back and just take a look about what is school, you know, it's preparing – us for the future, preparing the children to be the ones that lead. And we've done a poor job of preparing them for that because what we've done is prepared a standards-based system that focuses on the individual instead of everybody working as a collective. And we haven't tailored the experience to all socioeconomic groups. We've largely tailored it to these socioeconomic groups that have the ability to influence uh, what 
is in their own best interest rather than the best interest of everybody collectively. And that's true. And so we're going to wrap this up right here, which is basically that the effects of education disparities will have a long-term socioeconomic impact that will widen both the achievement gap and hinder social or societal advancements. For future episodes and to learn more about the worker movement, join us at workermovement.com.